Welcome to the Chalk Life Podcast. My guest today is Bill Pruitt, nominated three times by the Producers Guild of America as Nonfiction Producer of the Year and Emmy Award-winning producer of shows The Amazing Race, The Apprentice, and Deadliest Catch. He has produced television all around the world, filming on nearly every continent on the planet. His adventures as a producer have included following contestants racing around the world, candidates vying for a job working for Donald Trump, truckers in the high Himalayas, Perpetrators of the Rwanda Genocide in France, Crab Fishermen on the Bering Sea, Alleged Terrorists in the Congo, Pot Growers in the Emerald Triangle, Gator Hunters in the Louisiana Swamp, and Commercial Spear Fishermen Diving Deep into the Gulf of Mexico. Hi, Bill. Thank you for talking to us today about working in Hollywood. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Can you tell me a little bit about what you're doing now? I'm working on yet another uh, adventure reality series concerning commercial spearfishing in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, it's a sort of a, a throwback to ancient practice of going deep into the ocean to find one's bounty. Uh, it's kind of shark week meets deadliest catch, and it's probably the most challenging thing I've ever done. Uh, what's the most challenging about it? You, the weather, Mother Nature. Um, you can go about the business of concocting the most advanced production schedule, uh, refined everyone on time, on place where they need to be, and Mother Nature will come in and just turn it all upside down, and she can and she will. Right. So what's your title on this uh, show? I'm the executive producer. And what does that mean exactly? I oversee the, uh, the creative entity. I, I bring together a crew of people. I hire them. They're all creative uh, or logistical uh, Kingpins, they, they do their job very, very well, and, uh, but they need to collaborate with one another, and that's not always the easiest thing for them to do. But uh, I sort of lead them to one singular creative vision, uh, inspire them, motivate them, and uh, you know, if I need to, uh, cajole them into uh, to adhering to that vision on time and on budget. Okay. And so let's go back to when you started out in the business. Did you always want to work in, say, reality, or had you started in a different mode, and, and what got you to where you are now? Well, I began my career in the entertainment business working for Robert Redford's Sundance Institute. It remains a haven for independent-minded filmmakers who work outside of the studio system and literally have to will their image onto the screen. Uh, this scrappy introduction to... Uh, the world of entertainment suited me pretty well, and uh, I followed the the one of the founders of Sundance to Columbia University, New York City, where he chaired the uh, screenwriting and directing program and the Masters of Fine Arts program uh, there, the School of the Arts. Thinking that I would be a, an independent filmmaker, many like many of the uh, people I encountered at Sundance and and admired. Um, but it's a hard road, and uh, becoming a father certainly sort of changed my view on life. Uh, I've been a, uh, a war correspondent for a time, too, and, and uh, my appreciation for life uh, changed as well. And I began to understand that you just kind of take it where you can get it. And when the documentary world of e-entertainment television came along and offered to hire me and pay me to do something creative, I, I snatched it up. And that turned me on to nonfiction storytelling. Um, I found that the truth is often stranger than fiction. It's just more bizarre. It's not as concocted. And uh, you can get certainly a lot more meaning out of it because it did happen. It's real. 
And uh, I grew fascinated by the documentaries I saw at the Sundance Film Festival, where I continued to work on a seasonal basis. And then eventually began to realize that when, with the onslaught of reality TV, that you can make a pretty decent living doing this. That as much as it would be great to have, you know, 300,000 people turn up in an auditorium to watch your, 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 you know, tiny spirited documentary film, having a big audience watching, you know, something you produced along with countless others to, you know, great effect can equally be satisfying. And, and I realized that they were pretty much the same thing, just for a different medium. Documentaries are two-hour stories told in dark rooms with a collection of people. Television, nonfiction is, is basically the same thing squeezed between commercial breaks. <laughs> you know, right. 12 million people sitting at home watching. And so it, it sounds a little bit like you also got kind of addicted to the on-the-fly, which is what reality, you just deal with what you get and you make a show out of it. Absolutely. You, you wake up in the morning, you don't know what your day is going to be like. As much as the call sheet tells you, yeah, you're going to try and be here and do this and do that there, it's really the reality as, as you know, God has given us, <laughs> to put it in that regard. Right. Um, you just don't know. Mother Nature, whomever. And so when you started out, before you went to Sundance, uh, had it been a goal for a long time to, to uh, make creative films? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Since I was 14 years old, I wanted to fuse picture, music, dialogue, acting into one sort of collective vision. Film does it better than anything. It's um, not quite like music, which I consider to be the last rapture. It's a very uh, convoluted medium in many ways because you can have a great story, but the music can come along and, and subvert it or enhance it. Uh, but uh, the film uh, filmmaking tradition is one I've been enamored with. And uh, yeah, I've always wanted to do it, partake in it in some way. And how did you get into Sundance? That's very competitive, isn't it? Not at all. When you're in Utah, and that's <laughs> where you grew up, uh, they're happy to have you. It was, a, it was destined to be a, a regional um, filmmaker's venue and lab originally. So um, you know, just by virtue of having grown up there, by luck and circumstance, I got to work with them. And I wasn't selected as much as I worked on the staff and worked with other selected filmmakers there. Right, so you worked your way in and, um, and then learned just by the people you met and then eventually got into educating yourself, it sounds like. Yep, yeah, exactly. And did you have any particular mentors then that helped you along the way? Certainly, um, there were two. Sterling Van Wagenen was the executive director of Sundance and he was also a filmmaker and he was also a family man. And uh, he would uh, produce movies like a, a Trip to Bountiful with Geraldine Page and uh, Carlin Glenn and uh, go back to Sundance and, and, and help foster the film program there. And then he would go and, and do a, uh, you know, a, a family gathering. And the way that Sterling sort of navigated his life was very inspiring to me as a man. Probably a better mentor for me would be Frank Danielle who, as I mentioned before, is the chairman of the Columbia University Film Division program. He, uh, he was a big shot in, in his uh, native Czechoslovakia as a screenwriter. And he and Milos Forman uh, were basically collaborators on, on projects there. And uh, they came to America and uh, have uh, dominated in Eastern European cinema as storytellers. Milos Forman, of course, is well known as the Academy Award-winning 
uh, director of One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest, and Amadeus, among others. And uh, he taught at Columbia as well. Frank brought him in. And uh, through Frank, I learned the, the pillars of storytelling, the basic aspects of structure and character. That's carried over into the work I'm doing right now on this spearfishing show. I've got cards up on the wall that determine what the story is going to be. And every single application I have in, in organizing the story here, I learned from Frank all those years ago. Right. It's always storytelling, whether it's reality, uh, whether it's fiction, nonfiction, it doesn't matter. It's, you still have to tell a story. That's right. We, we pray at the altar of intention and obstacle. <laughs> and, and that's generally where all the best stories come from. What do they want? What's in their way? You know? In this right. case, it's sharks. <laughs> <laughs> and have you always really just gravitated toward the creative uh, or storytelling side of it? Have you ever done any of any of the technical fields? Have you always done the other creative side? It's generally been with the clay. Um, when someone picks up a camera and starts talking about uh, f-stops and you know. Uh, gigabytes and 4k and this kind of thing I, I my eyes gloss over I'm, in, I'm enamored with those people that they can do that so well but it the, the create the technical aspects of it these are tools you know I mean if you took a crayon and drew on a wall and did it well and, and moved somebody you've done your job as far as I'm concerned so those technical aspects of it do matter they become tools but they come become tools for the greater overarching need to tell a story to move somebody and to the extent that they are useful to me in that regard, I am interested in them, but no more. And uh, so just back to what was your very first job, paid job, let's say? <laughs> Working in a restaurant washing dishes. No, <laughs> right. <laughs> no, let's get to the exciting Hollywood uh, job. <laughs> well, I think like many people, I started out at the bottom. I was a production assistant, and I think I was a production assistant for way too long. Because I didn't see anything between me as a production assistant and the guy at the top who had the, the singular vision, whose story they got to tell um, as being all that interesting. Um, costume design, very fascinating world. I'm a, I'm a big uh, connoisseur of fashion, having observed it for many years doing documentaries about fashion. And um, I really appreciate what goes into costume design on a feature film. Um, lighting and, and, and uh, grip were always, you know, important, but um, again, just didn't really appeal to me. Uh, the, the assistant camera operators got to see most of the action, and that was why I thought that might be a way to go at one point. But, um, and I'm a pretty good logistical planner, so being a production manager or a, an assistant director, which I've done, um, had some satisfaction, but again, it wasn't as creative as I wanted it to be. Those middle of the night decisions about what a character is going to do or how you're going to stage a reality scene or, um, you know, edit two pieces of material together to make an entirely new idea or how to cut time out of a, a lengthy reality program. It's got to be 42 minutes and it's right now clocking in at 55, you know, um, that's where I wanted to be. So I, I had to bypass all of those positions, all of those trails to get to where I wanted to be. And uh, so I stuck it out on the bottom as a production assistant, really waiting it out for far too long, thinking that the story would come or the opportunity would come. 
And and how did you so production assistant on a feature film or on on reality and docs? Well, I did features. I did commercials. I never worked as a production assistant on any reality doc, and I'm kind of glad I didn't because it's pretty grueling. Uh, the um, I tried to uh, to shadow directors in episodic television, thinking that might be interesting, and I did it for a while. But then I realized that as soon as you do that, you're just going to have to go over there and stand in line. You've proved yourself, but there's many who have come before you, and I'm not a very patient person, uh, which is also why I think reality and nonfiction appeals to me because something's always happening and I'm always working. I work constantly and, uh, I'm thankful for that. But, uh, yeah, I, uh, I, I stuck to, um, learning about the, the technical aspects and the, you know, the, the con- construct of a, a filmmaking world, who does what, what the purposes are, what the hierarchy is all about as a production assistant on, on other kinds of programming and material. How did you make the leap then from PA to writer, producer? Um, well, I mean, after a, a short stint uh, trying to cover wars and carry out some sort of Hemingway fantasy uh, <laughs> abroad, I came back and got a job as an associate producer on uh, the E! True Hollywood story. And this came to me via a friend in an airport who introduced me to somebody who said, they were making documentaries for E. And documentaries for me had always been, you know, that, uh, you know, David Wolper, you know, thing over there or, you know, um, the Maisel brothers, you know. Right. Um, you wouldn't, they would never, you know, be making documentaries at E. And then I quickly found out, oh, it's the E True Hollywood story. Well, that was still kind of cool. And the, uh, the person who I was going to be replacing uh, left to go and, pre- and, and make a movie for Robert Evans that she had written. So I thought, well, that's kind of cool. You know, she got in with him by virtue of doing this tawdry documentary. You know, worse things can happen. And I just moved to Los Angeles and needed to have a job. So I took up with them. And I really remember that first day of getting hired because I'd been working in an audiovisual department at a hotel uh, in Beverly Hills at the time. I realized I'm going to be working on something in a creative capacity. And how joyful is that? You know, it doesn't happen for all of us. And you can go to the lengths that I did and get a, a very expensive MFA and still come out, you know, with nothing to do, no opportunities. Uh, you make them if you can. But when, you know, the world calls, you take a job and you go for it. And it's, it's a real blessing to be working in a creative enterprise and getting paid to do it. I realized that then and I realize it now. But anyway, I started out working for E. And that, I mean, if you look back at those, that was a great proving ground, I would think, for someone wanting to do what you ended up doing, because those were actually really wonderful stories. They they went, they had, you know, beginning, middle, and end, and a great arc every time, and they were, they were well done. There's a gentleman named Jeff Shore who ran the program. Uh, he was the executive producer of the E! True Hollywood Story. He oversaw all of us, and we were a kooky, quirky bunch. And I like to call him the Roger Corman of reality TV because so many of my colleagues and my contemporaries came out of the true Hollywood story. They're now running their own production companies or studios, or they're making you know great reality series alongside myself and others. Um, this was a real breeding ground for nonfiction storytellers. And we learned from Jeff, and we learned from each other, and we learned from the stories. And Jeff was um, cognizant of my own quirkiness, I think, to give me the stories the E! True Hollywood stories that were different, that involved some sort of 
character flaw or some sort of, well, they all involve character flaws, but, um, you know, where it was kooky or there was something about it. So I got to do Hervé Villachez, you know, the little guy from Fantasy Island and Jeannie Carmen, who was a B-movie queen and just such a kook, but who was alive and well and sharing her story with us. And then I got to do Bob Fosse, who was the creatively you know, creative genius with the character flaws who put it all out there in his work, you know. These were stories that I uh, gravitated toward and Jeff thankfully gave to me to, to produce. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was a wonderful time and it felt like college. Well, you know, that's the interesting thing is that I was always told when I was starting out, look at who's involved in the project. Don't necessarily look at the project itself because like you said, it's really who's involved because you'll learn a lot. You can end up doing great things even on a project that maybe you didn't think was going to be much to begin with. Yeah, exactly. And it's kind of interesting that you said, yeah, you got your MFA from Columbia, which is a fantastic school, but it sounds like you had to go through the same things that everyone else has to go through to start out. You didn't come out an executive producer out of an MFA, a wonderful MFA program working with top flight people. So that's an interesting thing for people to know as well. Well, I think that I should add that um, the the MFA programs at UCLA, USC, NYU, and Columbia were at the time grinding out students. Like all the studios went right to the film schools and snatched up the the, the kingpins there to, to to direct their movies. It was happening. It was in the uh, late '80s, early '90s, and uh, people like Phil Joanna, who is now directing commercials mainly. Uh, came out, they were anointed by people like Spielberg, and they had their USC student film under their arm, and they walked right into the studios, and they made movies. So at the time, it was happening. And there were also people going out into the independent world, directly out of NYU particularly, and Columbia. And they were making really, you know, uh, dramatically uh, well-crafted movies that played at places like Sundance. And so... There was an influx into the, the filmmaking world out of film school. And then just like the faucet, it turned off. Be, it became about commercial and video directors. And you probably remember, you know, that whole thing. It was right. like if you'd gone and made a, a P. Diddy video, you know, then you got your directing career, that kind of thing. So I was kind of off the mark when it came to that. I think I had the opportunities. My film won awards all over the world and, and played at Sundance itself. But, you know, I, I think that, you know, with respect to representation and how to self-promote, I wasn't in that game as well as I could have been and uh, on a peer. But again, I'm happy. I'm happy to be working and telling stories. Yeah. And so is there, speaking of that, is there anything you would do differently? Uh, I think that what I <clears throat> neglected because of the glamour aspect of it was the documentary film. Um, my goal now would be to make, if I were to return to the feature film world, and I do intend to, it would be to direct a documentary because they're every bit as elegant, they're every bit as moving when they're done the right way. They're compelling, and again, they're real. And when I was in school, I remember there were people doing documentaries, and I was like, well, good for you, you know, good luck with that, you know, like, (laughs) you'll be on a university campus somewhere showing your film, and, and that'll be That'll be just great, and I'll be there, and I'll watch it, because I love them. But then I noticed when I went to Sundance, uh, year after year, to work for the film festival, I neglected to see all of the dramatic features in favor of the documentaries, because those were going to go away. Those were the rare gems that disappeared, and now they're back. You know, They're on iTunes. 
They're on Netflix. You can download them. You can watch them. And you can have those experiences. And those same people are out there grinding away. And now I know those people. And they, they've won Oscars, you know. And it's so amazing to, to be able to do that and shape the world with these powerful, socially relevant documentaries. I would do that. That's absolutely what I would do. Um, because you can't just sit around and wait for Nicole Kidman to say yes to your script. You just can't. you got to do something. And the documentary non fiction world allows you to just go and do it. Just do it. Right. And like you said, now there are so many outlets for them and people are watching them on all different, uh, in all different ways before it was a lot more difficult, you know, to get them seen. So it's incredible opportunities now. It's incredible, but it's also crowded and all the right. good stuff is going to get, it's hard to filter through all that stuff. And I'm not really qualified to talk about that, of course, but you know, I can think the same thing can be said for, reality television there's so much of it on now it's like and 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 the good ones have to stand alongside the lowest common denominator programs that you know everyone's calling you know about bringing down society and and such you know i'm we we don't need to talk about that right now (laughs) um so just going to that what what's the most fun you've had in your career most fun thing that's happened to you or or thing you'd celebrate um well fun is a relative term you know i can be just uh enjoying hanging out in uh the production office with a, a really extremely talented crew of people after a satisfying day of work and that can just be joyful um i could be as i was often on the amazing race as you know standing in uh the middle of the desert in morocco seeing an incredible sunrise uh listening to the call to prayer. As a kid growing up in Utah, you know, what the hell? I would never be experiencing something like that, you know, dream about it even. And there I was. So the travel aspect has always been probably first rate, but it's, it's caused schisms in, you know, my personal life, you know, and relationships and keeping uh, consistency in, in friendships and love relationships and whatnot. It's been tough. So there's always a downside to whatever is fun. Um, but uh, seeing a story come together and watching people react to it is probably the best. I used to have um, screening parties at my, my house. The editors are particularly notorious for, for being closed off in their, in their dark rooms with their big computer screens, cutting away. And, and they were really the true storytellers in, in reality TV, more than anybody else in the crew, I maintain. And because they put it together, you, you oversee that and you help them, you collaborate with them. Some of them are button pushers, but the good ones will sit there and piece by piece put these, put these episodes together for us to enjoy. And then they go, uh, go home, and then they come back the next day and they sit in their room. They're isolated. They're cut off. So I used to host parties at my home where I would invite friends who had no inkling of what the story was even. They'd watch you know, The Apprentice or mainly The Amazing Race, and I would cook ethnic food based on what country we happened to be in in that episode. And this was the episode that this editor had put together, and I'd make sure that they would sit front and center for everyone else around them to watch and to watch the reaction of these people to their work. Uh, and it was joyful. That was just magnificent to see people not just kind of gratuitously, you know, applauding or laughing when they needed to, but really sitting there and enjoying it and having the editor soak that in and see that and feel that. Uh, I used to direct a lot of theater and I loved the immediate reaction you got, you know, from the moment. And 
that that would happen regularly at these dinner parties. It was fun to see. That's probably the best. Well, and you know, speaking of that, the editor is definitely the unsung hero because if you've ever been out in the field and you go out shooting and then you think, oh, I didn't, I didn't get anything on that shoot. You come back right. and then the editor makes it something magnificent. They can absolutely make or break whatever you did out there, whatever you created. So it is pretty incredible uh, to right. see what they can do. Do you feel like you've gone to where you want to go or do you feel like you have farther that you want to go in, in your work in Hollywood? It's a good question. You know, I do think <clears throat> that for me to transition into a featured documentary seems inevitable uh, at some point to have something more lasting. You know, the problem with uh, making non-scripted reality TV is that it's so um, disposable. You know, it, because it happens and it's such an immediate condition when you're watching it, you know, teams racing through the world or, you know, sitting in the boardroom with Donald Trump, you know, it's happening. And that's part of the joy and the wonder of it is that it feels so immediate. But then it's over. Someone's been eliminated or somebody caught more fish than somebody else, you know, and then it's done. And while I know people are watching Duck Dynasty over and over again on iTunes and God bless them, um, those... That, that disposable element is, is a little bit unnerving for me. So I think that something that has more durability, like a documentary, is probably forthcoming. Um, I just don't know what the story would be. There's, there's a lot of them out there circling. And uh, it's, it's, you know, that's a big, a big risk for anyone to take. I do think about production companies that would fold in all of these ideas and possibly uh, steering my own ship in that regard one day. Uh, I don't know that I have the temperament to run a network. <laughs> no, I often think about it because I often wonder what the people who are in charge are thinking. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm not sure. So I'm pretty happy. I have to say that. Yeah, you keep very very busy. So what would you what would you say if someone wants to work on reality shows? What kind of advice would you give for that? Again, kind of like you know the fun. It's a relative thing to 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 work it out. I, I've known people who walk in the room and just by virtue of their charisma get a job. Okay, and that's something I've seen happen over and over again in L.A. Uh, especially, <clears throat> um, I'm not one of those people. Uh, I'll probably step on my tongue, you know, just as I have now, uh, more often than anything else, and 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 have to convince somebody through my work or my effort that I deserve to get a job or that I'll be productive in the long run. I think that the, um, like you were saying earlier, when, when you find out who's working on a shoot, and let's just say if Spike Jones is doing a commercial, let's say, and you really like Spike Jones movies, go and work on that commercial. Work on that commercial for free. Do it for three days. Make an impression. Make sure he knows that you're the guy who got his coffee and that anybody surrounding him who's looking out for him and protecting him and his vision knows that you are the guy who's interested in this kind of work as well. Uh, make those associations and make them stick. Follow through and continue to pursue them. Because it's not exactly necessarily who you know, it's who they think you know as well. But by virtue of just having that, that kind of run-in, you can get a lot of mileage out of that, and then you can go and talk to somebody who talks to somebody who knows somebody. When I was starting out, I went to New York City specifically for that reason, and it paid off for me. Um, when you're in Los Angeles, you're 
on the 405 with the windows up, the stereo on, two hours away from that other person. And you just, the chances of communicating and connecting in that big vastness is, is, is daunting. In New York City, on Manhattan, on Thursday afternoon, there's 10 million people walking around. And they're coming in and out of buildings, in and out of subways. And I happen to be actually in Brooklyn on Smith Street coming out of a train station. I met in, ran into somebody who preceded me at Columbia, but I knew from Sundance. And I asked him, well, what are you up to? And he says, well, I got a chance to direct my movie. Kevin Bacon's in it. Mary Steenburgen's executive producer. We start shooting in a couple of months down in, uh, in Arkansas. And I said, well, I'd love to join you. Can I come and work on it? And he said, absolutely. Talk to this guy and you'll be a production assistant. And that's what happened. And then it started and worked and worked and worked and worked and worked. So if you're good and you continue to pursue it. But I also need, think you need to put yourself in the, in the place where you can be available to people to work. And uh, it's hard to do that, you know, from a corn farm in, in Iowa. Right. Um, the other thing I would say is when, you're, when you've gotten to a place and you've got your vision and your story intact and someone's willing to bank on it, be aware that they will want to put their stamp on it and that there's an inordinate capacity, whether it's film studios, TV networks, publishers and whatnot, to, to turn the, the finest wine, vintage or not, into distilled water. They think everyone wants to drink you got to hold out for the wine. you got to hold out for what's real. you got to hold out for the thing that you are trying to tell, the story you're trying to tell. Don't let them subvert that because they will. You can go to all the trouble to try and get to the place, having PA'd on countless shoots, done what you've done, and um, you know, surrender your vision in a heartbeat just because you finally got there and someone said, yeah, but that's not the story I thought we were going to tell. Ask yourself what it's the story that you're going to tell, the the uh, analogy that's been expressed to me is like climbing, Hollywood is like climbing a huge mountain of manure, <laughs> slipping <laughs> and sliding, only to get to the top and find that single red rose, and pluck it, <laughs> sniff it, and find that you've lost your sense of smell. So along the way, you know, you'll encounter all kinds of dreams and visions and people in power, and you need to sustain your own sense of what the story is, who you are, and how the two matter. You know what I mean? Yep. Hey, you know, I couldn't end it on a better note. Thank you so much, Bill. I can't wait to see that documentary. Thank you, Ingrid. Thank you very much. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) If you have questions for Bill or about reality TV producing, go to chocolife.com.